Welcome to Brew Crime, a true crime and beer podcast. This is a podcast where we pick a theme, cover a few cases, and pair them with craft beer. Join me, Mike. And me, JT. As we explore the world of crime, conspiracies, or whatever catches our attention. You can find us on social media at BrewCrime or our website, BrewCrime.com. And you can find us on any podcast app at BrewCrime Podcast. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and maybe, eh, probably, nah, definitely tip a bottle or two back as you do it. Drink with us the second and last Tuesday of every month. Crime Scene and Cupcakes is an independent podcast created in the Anchor app, funded mainly through advertising. The podcast often has coarse language and disturbing content. Please listen wisely. Hey guys, it's Marianne, Dog Mom, Baker, True Crime Podcast Maker. And I hope you guys enjoyed the trailer to Brew Crime, a new podcast I just started listening to. Their Munchausen by Proxy podcast got me hooked. And I'm not a beer drinker, but really enjoyed that and kind of got me excited to try out a few new beers. So hope you enjoyed listening to that. And also, I know our podcast has come out a little bit later than usual, but there's a reason for that, because we decided to take a trip. We took a trip 1,298 miles away, but we also took a trip back in time. So you're probably wondering why a podcast that features cases in Kansas decided to go to Florida. It all sounds a little weird, a little discombobulated, but I promise by the end of the podcast, it all comes back together. So first off, we're going to talk about the story of Jessica Lunsford and how the death of this beautiful, wonderful little girl ended up making a huge difference in the lives of many others and other potential victims out there. So on February 24th, 2005 in Hermosa, Florida, Mark Lunsford discovered that his nine-year-old daughter, Jessica, was missing from her bedroom. He had gone into her bedroom to turn off her alarm because the alarm was going off incessantly and he couldn't figure out why she hadn't shut it off. So he goes in there and she's not in there and he figures, well, maybe she's already up and she just didn't turn off the alarm. So he shuts off the alarm and looks around her bedroom first and nothing really appears to be missing except for a pink nightgown and white shorts that she had worn to bed the night before and her favorite stuffed toy, a stuffed dolphin. Her school clothes 
they were already neatly laid out for the upcoming day, but she hadn't put those on yet. Now, Mark is searching the home, and it's a mobile home that he shared with his parents because Mark was recently divorced, and the night before, he had spent it with his girlfriend, so he had just returned back to the home at around 6 a.m. He did notice that when he returned home, the front door had been unlocked and he already had thought that was unusual. Now he cannot find his nine-year-old daughter, Jessica. So he immediately notifies the police. So Mark has returned home from staying the night at his girlfriend's at about 6 a.m and realizes Jessica is missing. He immediately contacts the police and a nationwide missing children's alert is issued. Unfortunately, they cannot issue an Amber Alert because for law enforcement to be able to really find that useful, they need to know what vehicle might have been used in the abduction. We did a podcast explaining all of the items that are included have to have in order to do an Amber Alert. So if you guys want, you can go back and listen to that podcast and you get a better sense of what is required to do an Amber Alert. But a nationwide missing children's alert was issued and that does try to disseminate that information across the nation. And it lets everybody know that Jessica is nine years old She's four feet, 11 inches tall, brown hair, and the most beautiful brown eyes you've ever seen. And almost immediately after Jessica was reported missing, authorities, volunteers, everyone starts scouring the area and the bloodhounds are brought out. Now, that's something that, you know, me and dogs, very important. Bloodhounds are just your better scenting dogs in that area. So it was very lucky that they actually had a neighbor nearby named Alvin Harris, and he had his bloodhound, Buford, and good boy Buford was helping in the hunt for Jessica. So they are also going door to door, checking with neighbors and doing the search. Now that comes in to be very important here later. So, They've got the volunteers. They've even got officers on horseback. There's a police helicopter. Dive teams are assembled to search all the nearby bodies of water. And the search was initially focused on a dense wooded area surrounding the family home. And even with all of this, everyone out there, everyone searching, nobody can find Jessica. Now, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or the FDLE, at that time, they had about 208 sex offenders uh, within Citrus County and within about 50 miles of the zip code surrounding Jessica's home. And it's protocol when in a missing child's case that the police do a net and look at the sex offenders within that area and on March 15th, they disclosed that there was a person of interest. And it was somebody that Jessica knew. And it was somebody who was within the circles that she knew from church. 
And the Citrus County Sheriff's Department stated that the sex offender had recently gone missing the same time Jessica had gone missing. And they announced that, okay, we cannot find this guy anywhere. So we're giving you time to turn yourself in. You're a person of interest. You're not under arrest, but we want to talk to you. So we're giving you a period of time to come in and talk to us. If you do not turn yourself in or come in and talk to us, we're going to disclose your name to the public. And 48 hours comes and it goes and he never comes in. So after that 48 hours, the police release his name as John Evander Cooey. So John Evander Cooey, he gets arrested in Savannah, Georgia, because he has an outstanding local warrant for marijuana possession. Um, and we also find out Cooey's well known around Hamasa, Florida. He has an extensive criminal record. Most of it started out as burglaries, but then he graduates to child sex crimes. All of those crimes, though, he receives only short prison sentences. And when he was released, he was not monitored very closely. So on March 12th, Cooey gets arrested again in Augusta, Georgia, but this time he's arrested at the request of Citrus County Sheriff's Office because they say they want to question him for Jessica Lunsford's disappearance. So this is the person of interest. They want to question him. And one of the main reasons they want to question him is he lived only 65 yards from Jessica Lunsford's home. So when the police bring him in, he states he has no idea of anything about Jessica Lunsford. And on top of that, he doesn't really even know who Jessica Lunsford is outside of what he's been seeing going on with the news. They don't have a lot to hold him on, so they have to go ahead and release him. But then on March 14th, Cooey's half-sister, Dorothy Dixon, gives the Citrus County Sheriff's Department consent to search her trailer. And there's quite a few people living in her trailer. In her trailer, she has her boyfriend, plus her daughter and her son-in-law, and their two-year-old grandson. Their two-year-old grandson, who has also been living with Cooey, the registered sex offender. Now, when the police are conducting their search, they find in Cooey's room a blood-stained mattress and pillows. After they do forensic analysis, they find out that the blood on there and they find semen and it comes back to Cooey and Jessica Lunsford. So then on March 17th, Cooey is arrested and charged with the murder of Jessica Lunsford, and he's transported back to the Citrus County Jail in Florida. So then by the next day, the Lunsford's family's greatest fears are confirmed because Cooey confesses 
to abducting, raping, and murdering Jessica. Now, he does all of this after he was given a lie detector test. And a lot of times, even though he knew the lie detector test, what it was going to show, a lot of times these guys, they're just prolonging the inevitable. They know that they're found out. They know they're caught, but they're doing everything they can to postpone having to put on that orange jumpsuit and go off to their final destination. So he finally has the investigators come in and he tells them where he buried Jessica's body. And unfortunately, that whole time, Jessica's body had only been 200 yards from her own home. And her father is led to where her body had been and I can't even imagine the pain he must have been going through knowing every day when he had been shouting her name and she had just been right there. So on top of Cooey being arrested, so were the additional adults in the trailer. Now, investigators are saying that they don't think they knew anything about the abduction or the murder. They just knew Cooey had done something to break the law. He had gotten the hell out of the state and they were covering his ass. In Cooey's confession, he states that he abducted Jessica at around three in the morning. He says he enters the house, he wakes her up, and tells her not to say anything. He then takes her over to the mobile home where he kept Jessica alive for the weekend and he raped her over and over again. And in a very cruel twist of fate, investigators had come to that mobile home when they were doing their door-to-door -door search, but they didn't ask to come in and search the mobile home while Jessica was there, still alive. Of course, Cooey says, well, I wish they had. Cooey always finds someone else to put the blame on rather than himself up until the very end. Cooey had kept Jessica hidden in a closet and he mentally tortured her. He kept showing her how everyone was looking for her. He showed her the news reports he showed her how her family was diligently trying to find her and while he was keeping her locked up in that closet. And she was only nine years old. Then the day came where Cooey had told Jessica he was going to let her go home. So he said he, he got a garbage bag and he said, okay. I just need you to get in the garbage bag because I don't want anyone to see me dropping you off. And Jessica still held out hope that she was going to get to go home and she believed him. So she gets in the garbage bag because you got to hold out hope. And so she got in there hoping he was going to take her home. And instead, he takes that garbage bag with that little girl in it and he buries her alive in that shallow grave 
200 yards from her home. And Cooey, the whole time, blamed Jessica. He said it was her fault for not fighting back. So in court, the evidence against Cooey was damning. Other than his confession, investigators also had a blood stain containing Jessica's DNA on his bed. They had Cooey's DNA with the semen and that was all mixed with it in the closet where he kept Jessica. And this just really tears my heart for some reason. There's a pizza box containing Jessica's fingerprints and I just picture her eating pizza in that closet just kills me every time. Her fingerprints were also found on a glass table in Cooey's bedroom. Now Cooey was found guilty and he was sentenced to death, but instead he dies of natural causes in prison in 2009. Jessica Lunsford's family and law enforcement in the area and so many people did not want to see something like this happen again. And so the Jessica Lunsford's Act on September 1st of 2005 took effect and it significantly altered Florida's sexual offender and predator registration laws. I mean, it made them repeat offenders were getting life in prison. The registration of sexual offenders changed. They were now required to register. Um, they then, and I'm going to have all of this and all of what goes into the act, but it changed it forever of what the act is supposed to be. Now, it's not foolproof because part of it requires those sexual offenders to actually do what they are supposed to do if and when they are released. But one of the changes is that if the offender is a habitual offender, if this offender reoffends or does an offense to a certain level, they will receive life in prison without parole. And to me, that is extremely important. And as I've said before, I know someone, I have personal connections in that situation. And so I'm a little emotional. It, it, it means a little bit different. But for those victims out there, so for those families of victims, this act has changed the way offenders are sentenced significantly. So my mission has always been to work with victims of sexual crimes. And I have particularly tried to focus that on children of those crimes, which is really difficult. Um, and now I do podcasting of unsolved crimes. And so that's why this podcast might 
sound a little off and a little all over the place. And it's because this is just a particularly difficult one for me to tell. I did reach out to other podcasters actually asking them to tell this story because I think a lot of people need to know about this. Um, but I finally decided that I needed to share a little bit about this case because it is a Wichita case. And I had said I was going to focus on these cases. Now, even though Crime Scene and Cupcakes is going to be focusing on unsolved cases, I did want to focus a little bit on the case of Corbin James Brettenbach because I think it's important for this audience to hear this story and how Jessica Lunsford had a hand in making sure a monster like Corbin James Brettenbach will hopefully not get back out to hurt anyone else. Corbin James Brettenbach, registered sex offender in Wichita, Kansas, had choked, raped, and sodomized a 22-year-old woman in 2012 while she was looking for her cell phone as she was going into her apartment. So Brettenbach receives five years and eight months at the Lansing Department of Corrections. And he was not a model prisoner. He received 32 disciplinary reports, lying, fighting, just causing multiple problems. Fraud, I mean, just stuff I was finding was insane. And this is all from the Kansas Department of Corrections. However, with all of that, Brettenbach was still granted early release from prison because he had attended a rehabilitation and treatment program. So, he's given early release as long as he reports to his parole officer and does the things that you're supposed to do while you are out on parole. You know, no drinking, you know, staying where you're supposed to be, where you're registered at as a sex offender, no consorting with minors, those typical things. So again, Breadenbox released from Lansing April 28, 2017. I think I already said that. But a little over six weeks later, Breadenbox is back in front of a judge, shaking his head and rolling his eyes because the judge is setting a $1 million bond. Because this time, Breadenbox is being charged with attempted capital murder via strangulation, aggravated burglary, and the rape and criminal sodomy of a seven-year-old girl. Now, this attack occurred on June 11th. 
At that time, Brettenbach had been out drinking with his new girlfriend and had decided to stay over at her apartment. Now, this apartment was just across the courtyard of a seven-year-old girl, and this little girl was excited because her mom was letting her friend come stay with her. And that choice would alter so many lives. And the other little girl, her mom never knew by saying it was okay to go spend the night with her friend that she would be putting her daughter right in the crosshairs of a registered sex offender. She didn't know this because according to his parole, Brettenbach was supposed to be staying at his mom's where he's registered to be. So this little girl, we're going to call her Lily. That's not her name. It's not close to her name, but that's what I'm going to call her. So Lily and her brother get dropped off by their mom to stay the night and play at the apartment with their friends. And around 10 p.m. that night, everybody in the family decides it's time to go to bed. But then the mom states that about 2.30 in the morning, she's awakened because she hears crying in another bedroom. So she gets up and she goes in there and she finds Lily. Lily's partially covered by a bed sheet and there's blood everywhere. And I do mean everywhere. The mom immediately calls 911 where Lily is taken to the hospital where a sexual assault response team is waiting. For those of you who may not be familiar, a sexual assault response team is a sexual assault nurse examiner, a child advocacy person, or an advocacy person for an adult who is there who stands with the person to make sure their rights, their dignity, and what they are saying is cared for. You have somebody from the detectives of the sex crimes unit, and you have forensics there. You make sure chain of custody is maintained. The hospital has a specific area where the person who has been assaulted is brought in through, and they are taken care of. It there are special equipments, there are special scopes, there are special cameras. It has, it was started by an amazing woman. Um, her name was Diana Shun. She got the grants, she got the funding. Absolutely incredible person. I cannot say this enough, who got the specialized training for sexual assault nurse examiners. So when I say there is a sexual assault response team, it is an extremely specialized team. There are even specialized physicians who specialize in sexual assault. There are pediatric sexual assault physicians. It is so sad that we even have doctors who are specialized in this. 
but there are, and Dr. Teresa Craddock is a doctor who was on this case, and just absolutely amazing individuals. So as Lily is being examined, she explains that she had been awakened by a man who looked like her dad without the beard or the mustache. She then goes on to say the man had choked her and did something to her private parts. She thinks she may have seen the man before, but she really couldn't remember. She had significant injuries from head to toe. As I had said, Dr. Teresa Craddock, who is on the SANSART team, had testified in court that these injuries were the most severe injuries she had ever seen in a pediatric case. In fact, Lily had to have reconstructive surgery done in those sensitive areas after the brutality of this attack. Back at home, blood was found on the door and on the balcony. There was semen stains that were taken from the couch and police had compared these stains not only to the people around the area, they had even compared it to her father because that was a comment that was made. Now, when the semen and DNA were uploaded into CODIS at the Sedgwick County Forensic Science Center, there was a hit from somebody who was already in the system, and that someone was Corbin James Brettenbach. Now, it was later testified in court by, some, by the scientists from the Sedgwick County Forensic Science Center that the odds of it being someone else would be one in 107 octillion. That's a lot. Now, Brettenbach's girlfriend stated that during the police interview, she had told police that she had been dating Brettenbach for about six weeks, that Brettenbach had contacted her about 1 a.m. that morning um, because he had been at a bar and he needed picked up which again, he's on parole. He's not supposed to be doing that. She picked him up and they returned to her apartment at about 1.30. When they returned home, the girlfriend stated she had to let her dog out. So she sat down on the apartment steps. While she was doing that, Brettenbach decided to go for a run because that's generally what you do after you've been out drinking. You wanna go for a jog normal behavior. So she said about 20 to 25 minutes later, Brettenbach came walking back up the sidewalk and they went inside together. Brettenbach's girlfriend said she went straight to bed while Brettenbach went to the bathroom first. Now she said he did not take a shower. She said she did remember Brettenbach being sweaty as if he had been on a run, but he didn't change his clothes and his clothes were not dirty, she said and she didn't see any blood. Now, Lily, she was taken to the Child Advocacy Center where she was shown a photo lineup. And after being shown multiple groups of photos, the minute she saw Brettenbach, she picked him up and said, that's him, that's who did this to me. So Brettenbach was arrested and the police were able to obtain additional evidence. So at his grandma's house, he had a pair of Reebok tennis shoes 
And so the police bagged him up and they found the victim's DNA and with blood on the bottom of his tennis shoes. Also, Brettenbach from the jail, which all it, there's a big sign that says all phone calls from the jail are recorded. And he had called his grandma and his mother from the jail and was talking about how he was a monster. He did everything that they had said he did and that he was too dangerous to be out among people and that he just can't control himself, that he has this monster in him. So for court, Brettenbach was appointed a public defender who he immediately fired. Then he was assigned another defender and Brattenbach then decided to file multiple motions stating his counsel was ineffective and he wanted his attorney gone. And that's when it became obvious Brettenbach liked filing motions. He loved doing this. He loved wasting the court's time. His previous attorneys were trying to work out a plea deal because, you know, all the DNA and the blood and the sneakers and the confession, it just seemed like the smartest move, but Corbin was having none of it. He said, I have 140 IQ. I can get out of this. So Corbin, one of his plans was he wanted some DNA experts flown in and he wanted the DNA rerun and he wanted all of these DNA experts flown in. And I mean, he wanted like these huge names of people's flown in. And the public defender's office said, we don't have the funds to do that. And so he filed a motion saying, well, it's unethical that the public defenders should be able to have access and be able to get anything that, you know, the he needed because, you know, he needed that for his defense. And the public defender's office said, you don't get a blank check of just anything at all for your defense. If that was the case, then there would never be an end to it. And he came back saying, no, I mean, it just became this constant back and forth. And he filed motions after motions. And it just became this ridiculous circus of a show. And then, so after all of this, then Brettenbach decides there was no one better to represent him than himself. Because, you know... He has 140 IQ. And, well, you know what Abraham Lincoln has always said about that. A man who represents himself has a fool for a client. Well, so Brettenbach in court tries the theory that it was someone else. Someone else came in and that person raped Lily. He had nothing to do with it. And he even tried to say it was her dad. Her dad came in and did it because 
you know, she talked about the fact of what the man looked like and compared to how her father looks. And it was just asinine how far this guy would go. And then when Brettenbach, though, took the stand and was questioned about the DNA on Lily, about the blood on his shoes, he had nothing. He would just always respond with, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Then when it came to the recording at the jailhouse, he did everything in the world to try to get that recording not to play in court. It didn't work, but he tried. And this guy, I, we will have, I'm going to, there, there are several videos of him in court, and this guy is just repugnant. He just makes me sick and angry, as you could probably obviously tell. I've lost my voice because I've had to cut this so many times because I've said so many foul things over and over. But let me tell you, little seven-year-old Lily, by the time this came to court, Lily is a rock star. Lily, um, that's not her real name, but the little girl who had to suffer at the hands of this monster was such a tough, amazing little girl. And they had videotaped her testimony and had played that in court. And after everything was said and done, the jury went out and came back. And in an hour, they had convicted him. And thanks to Jessica Lumsford, because in 2006, the Kansas legislature passed House Bill 2576. See, I told you we would come back from Florida. We passed Jessica's law here in Kansas, and it provides significant increases to penalties for sexual offenses involving minors. In fact, a conviction for certain offenses could result in a life sentence in prison with no possibility of parole. And that is exactly what Corbin James Brettenbach got after the jury deliberated for one hour. That is what he received as his sentence. And during the impact statement, that young girl came into the courtroom and looked him right in the eye. And she told him, how what he did had affected her life. And she's the toughest little girl in the world. That young lady, that amazing, amazing soul just blows me away every time. She looked him right in the eye and she said that angels had come to her that night and told her it wasn't her time to leave. And Brettenbach had no remorse, no sense of emotion, no nothing. But Lily, not her real name, but that tough, 
badass, amazing girl is why I chose to go ahead and do this podcast, which I'm still hoping other podcasters go and do it, do this story on this, because this young lady, so incredible, she shared a fist bump with DA Mark Bennett, who I got to tell you, he was by her side at the hospital. He was there with her. He prosecuted this case with his heart and his soul. It's this case was just so much out of everybody. And now, you know, we would hope Brettenbach could just be a man. Accept your fate for what you did. Allow your victim to move on with her life. She deserves that. But sadly, no. He is still filing his motions. He is still abusing the court system with his self-entitlement. Corbin Brettenbach has filed a civil action against the state of Kansas. Now he's got a hearing. Actually, he got a hearing on the matter for next week. And he has been moved from the prison in El Dorado back to the Sedgwick County Jail, which is probably what he wanted in the first place. In his civil action against the state, Brettenbach claims judicial bias, prosecutorial misconduct, ineffective assistance of counsel, and that his sentence violates the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. They are similar to the claims he made in his failed appeals. He also wants the district attorney the defense attorneys, and many others to be called back as witnesses. So he's wanting just about everybody who is involved in that case. So he's wanting to rip the scab off of the wounds. And basically what he wants is his narcissism to be fed yet again. And he wants all eyes back on him. And I I don't want the podcast to give eyes back on him. That that's the last thing I want, but I want his victims. Not only the young girl, but the 22-year-old that he assaulted that day, and who knows how many others. Because a family member had stated that they had seen his phone at one point with a bunch of drunken women staged in certain ways on his cell phone. So this is just a disgusting human being who does not deserve to be able to misuse the legal system in the way he has. So I've seen other people, though, without being able to read the article wholly, they jump on the bandwagon for people to give them their rights. This guy does not deserve that. This guy was an inhumane monster who caused a poor child to have to have reconstructive surgery. So I want that young lady to know 
that that monster is going to stay where he is and we will do everything we can to make sure. And I know D.A. Mark Bennett will make sure he stays exactly where he is. And I want to talk for just a moment about some upcoming podcasts we're going to have. We're going to discuss the Adam Herman case. Um, but we're not only going to discuss it. We are going to return back to the last place Adam Herman was known to be at. And we're going to do some more in-depth reviews of these cases. We are working with Uncovered. We are researching these cases and doing some in-depth looks at these cases. We've also picked up the case of Megan Fogelsong. And we are going to go back to Rice County. And we're going to take another look at that case and try to revive that missing person case. So we have a couple of missing person cases. We are also still working on the case. We are also still working on the case of Jaquilla Scales, and we're working on hopefully getting a billboard for these cases. So we're working out a way that we can put together and hopefully get a billboard for these cases. Um, I've reached out to the digital billboard company to see what the cost would be to do that. I think it'd be great if we could get a digital billboard that once a month would highlight a missing persons case each month because we have so many that have just been missing out of the Kansas eye. But our next case we're going to discuss is Adam Herman and it might bleed over into more than just one podcast because these podcasts are taking a more in-depth look. We are not just reciting a case that has been sent to us and we are actually as i said working with uncovered and doing a more analysis of this case um we are actually adding the mary crupper case to uncovered as well as i said i think there is more on that case it is an unsolved case in kansas and so we want to do a more in-depth analysis of that case as well so Thank you guys for listening. I'm sorry this uh, podcast was a little bit more erratic and emotional and a little more all over the board. But these types of cases, as I've said, I have more of a personal connection to. And when I have more of a personal connection to, I am not, it's, it's a little bit more difficult for me to get through. So I appreciate those of you who have listened to this case and I want to thank you of my listeners and I hope we're getting more. I want to thank Brew Crime, True Crime B&B and all the others who have played our trailers on them. It's so exciting to hear that even more. And as you guys have heard, we have Brew Crime Trailer at the beginning of this podcast. So you guys go over and give them a listen. They have got some really cool stuff going on. Thanks a lot, guys. Stay safe. 
Find us on our Instagram and Twitter where we'll be sharing pictures and information about this case. And also, in case you hadn't seen on our Twitter and our Instagram, Krista Martin's case is now one of the cases that is on the website Uncovered, where it gives a chance for um, seasoned individuals to be able to research and put their theories out there about Krista Martin's crime. Also, the Wichita Police Department has a website for unsolved cases. They also have two detectives that are now assigned to the unsolved cases. That information is on our Instagram. We are incredibly excited to see that Krista Martin's case is on there. So it's extremely exciting to see and be able to see other unsolved crimes. And we will be sharing those crimes with you and seeing what we can do to raise awareness on those crimes as well. Again, if you have any information on any unsolved crimes that have happened in the Wichita or Sedgwick County area, also you can go to the Sedgwick County website, which we will provide on our Instagram as well. Go to either one of those. We'll also be providing those links on our podcast as well. So you can go to those, look at the unsolved crimes, and if you have any information, please do not hesitate. Whatever information you have, big or small, can make a difference. Look for us next week and we'll have a new podcast. Thanks a lot. Stay safe.